The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report by Keystone Partners. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is Josh Burson. Josh is the founder and CEO of the Josh Burson Company. He's the author of Irresistible, his most recent book. And we talk about how he, as a tech executive, somehow made the shift to become one of the world's leading authorities on HR and becoming a global analyst in the industry. Amazing story. Talks about the skills that HR is going to need now and in the future. Advice about AI, which he's not afraid of and thinks it can be really leveraged in talent and HR. Talk about his book and his new spin on hybrid jobs and how job descriptions can sometimes be in the way and just his predictions for the next few years. He's an amazing thinker and communicator. You'll enjoy this episode. And now our conversation with Josh Burson. Josh Burson, it's great to have you on the Hennessy Report by Keystone. Thank you, David. I'm glad to be here. Before we talk about Irresistible and all the great work you do in HR research, we always like for our guests to give us just an early life moment you look at as maybe an inflection point on your life, your career. The two things that influenced me the most was first when I left IBM and my first entrepreneurial sort of small company job in the early 1980s. And I remember how difficult it was for me to leave the big battleship employer for this small little database company I went to work for. And that was a sort of stepping onto a moving plane. The second was when I was laid off, which was during the 2000 recession, right around 9-11. And I was working for a software company and there were absolutely no jobs. And that's how I became an industry analyst. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find anything else to do. <laughs> that's an amazing career story. You know, I was wondering about, I didn't know how somebody that's a tech executive and sales and marketing, Usually how does people, he become an HR expert? I mean, I started in online learning. I didn't know anything about HR. And then it just kept cascading into other topics. It's just a you know, random chance sometimes when your career. <laughs> that's cool. Well, congratulations on Irresistible. I know you've got an Idea Press entry for the Business Book Award. Congratulations on that. And I know Thank you're you. very excited about the work you're doing, and it is inspiring. The overall theme seems to be putting people and teams in the right spots in their organizations. But before we talk about the book, I want to talk about some of the things you're posting on social media, things <laughs> you're uh -oh. talking about, especially on AI. A lot of people are concerned about AI, and you're less concerned. I'm not concerned at all. Why not? I mean, maybe it's because I'm older, but listen, I, I think we've paid the price with social media, with Facebook, with Instagram, with Twitter, all of these tools that seem to have the best of intentions get misused and we learn later how to moderate them or regulate them, but we can never ever predict what's going to go well and what's not. And in the case of AI, 99% of the things we want to do with it are positive. I mean, there are so many things that AI does that make life better, that make businesses better, that reduce fraud, that reduce abuse, that improve productivity, to teach people, to improve education, to improve medical care, to improve science. And I know how it works. I know the technology. I understand the math behind it. It's not an evil technology. 
it's actually very, very ingenious the way it works. I think we have to have laws that penalize people for using it for the wrong things, but I don't know how we're going to regulate it. I mean, you know, these guys that say they want to get under the covers and look at the algorithms, I don't think that's even possible. Mm. So, I mean, I think the EU is working on something that'll probably be great and it'll probably be a good example for the United States. And I don't know why these computer scientists, you know, are so vocal that we should slow down and stop the development of it. That's impossible. Right. Cat's out of the bag. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if that's the case, how does HR prepare the AI? Well, in the case of HR, it's mostly really amazing things. And I think most HR people don't understand it yet, but there's three or four major implications of HR. First of all, most of the people decision-making practices in HR are difficult and imperfect. Who to hire, who to promote, what training somebody needs to be more effective, what training somebody needs to be a better manager. Why do we have low performance versus high performance? Why do we have somebody who's behaving badly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We use IO psychology, we use surveys, we try to use correlations, but we're not that good at understanding these people issues. AI can bring together hundreds and hundreds of variables and show us things like, well, the reason you know this particular store is underperforming all the other stores is because it was actually cold that day. It had nothing to do with the managers. I mean, I remember a study that was done by a bank in Canada. They were trying to figure out why there was fraud in certain branches and not in other branches. And they were sure that it had to do with training and compliance and management development. So they developed all this stuff and they rolled it out, it had no impact at all. They did a big statistical analysis of all of the data And they found out the most highly correlated factor with fraud was the number of miles from the branch to the branch manager or district manager. Because it turned out people in remote branches felt they weren't going to be supervised and they could kind of bend the rules. AI would have seen that instantaneously. It would have just Ah. said that. So there's hundreds of things like that that will get better. The second area that's going to get better is all of these problems with employee experience and employee self-service. Somebody wants to call up the HR manager and say, how do I take a leave? What's my benefit on this? How do I do the open enrollment? Where's my password? I lost my badge, whatever it is. That's all going to be done via AI. So a lot of that tactical operational service center stuff can be automated. And then the third area is all of the creation of content we do in HR. We create training content. We create onboarding content. We read the compliance manual, and then we turn it into a course. And then we read the new compliance manual, and we turn it into a course. That can all be done, you know, like a hundred times faster. So that's just a few things. So first step for an HR leader, if they haven't really Um, approached AI, what would you say? Go here, learn this. You pick the tool you like, whether it's OpenAI or Microsoft, and you let your team experiment with it Hmm. and let them try it. I don't think there are any consultants that are gurus at this yet. I think a lot of the best ideas are going to come from HR departments, working with their IT departments, trying things and learning how to use it. I was just on the phone with OpenAI an hour ago. I talked to one of the execs there and he said, you know, we're just barely at the beginning of understanding what the HR use cases are. We're we're trying to find companies that want to experiment with this. So volunteer, reach out to them, volunteer and say, hey, we want to put a team. And just get a group of people to try it for different, you know, things, training, onboarding, even selection. You know, many companies have told me that it's better at parsing resumes and finding the right candidate than a lot of the more expensive tools that have been around for a long time. So mm. um, I think the more like to help with the um, the objectivity with the, <clears throat> the DIB initiatives to try to yep. take away the bias. Absolutely. Too. 
In fact, that leads me to my next topic. Uh, you are quite articulate about equal pay for equal work. In your book, you talk about Salesforce and how they're driving it and other companies. Where do you think we are on equal pay and equal work and what's left to be done and how do we get there? The reason equal pay is a problem is that the pay systems with the salary bands, your level within the band, the impact of your performance rating on pay and so forth are all legacy industrial age business practices. And they were all designed around the industrial hierarchical pattern of careers. And now we have companies with specialists being hired with far more detailed skills than people inside of the company. So you have people coming into the company at a higher pay than people that have been around for a long time. People moving from a low-skilled job to a high-skilled job, but still getting paid for the low-skilled job. Decisions on who to promote. You know What we found about men versus women is what happens is when you're reaching the top of your band, there's this old story that I remember going through when I was at IBM. Well, I don't want to move you to the next band until you get promoted. And I can't give you a big raise because you'll reach the top of the band. So we're going to give you a 2% raise, which just makes you want to blow your brains out. You know, what? Where did that come from? So, you know, women get left behind on promotions. So therefore their pay falls behind, even though they're doing the same work as men because of the bias in promotions. And then you have people working remotely where the cost of living in New York is high, the cost of living in Montana is low. So, you know, we got the guy who moved from New York to Montana, Montana is overpaid. The guy who moved from Montana to New York is underpaid. I mean, there's just a hundred things that have happened that have disrupted this very structured pay process that companies tried to have. And so what we have really learned about in the pay equity area is you need to think about pay in a much more philosophical way you have to be very, very clear on what performance means. How are we going to evaluate it? It's not just hitting the numbers. It's also how well you worked with other people, how well you developed other people, how well you collaborated and what you did for the company as a whole, not for your own personal job, and then communicate that. And what we found, interestingly enough, in the pay equity area is that when companies do these studies and they find out they have all these pay equity problems, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to tell anybody. They just want to Quietly give people a little adjustment and say, okay, we're not going to explain what happened, but you got an adjustment because they're embarrassed. It's a big area of HR that's been left behind in many ways. Okay. So you think there's quite a ways to go. The concepts are getting clearer and people are much more aware of it. Hey, there's a law in the EU that as of next year, you can be fined for not having a pay equity program for women. The same law just passed in Australia. There's a law like that in Canada. So, you know, it's getting, it's getting solved. It's getting addressed. I was thinking about banking crisis this winter, and it seemed to really affect, I think, one of the healthiest parts of our economy is the whole VC economy and how, how many companies have been started, great companies that are doing terrific now. And I wonder what your feeling is about how that's going to impact just the overall economy. Is risk going to be taking out? Are we going to be seeing a lot less companies incubated over the next period of time? And what does this crisis mean for the talent? Prior to chat GPT, most VCs were pulling back all their money and putting it in the bank. Of course, they put it in Silicon Valley Bank, then they had to take it out of there. When you can get 4 or 5% return on a T-bill, the hurdle rate of a new investment goes up. So you, know, so you have the economy slowing down, the stock market goes through a correction, Interest rates are going up, and most of the VCs were pulling back, and they were telling their companies, cut costs, get ready for a winter period, stop spending so much money. 
However, funny enough, ChatGPT comes out. In the last month, there's been like 200, 500, I don't know how many AI companies have been formed. And now they're taking their money out of their pockets again, and they're investing in AI. Oh, you've already seen a shift. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the VC community is very much like lemmings. They follow each other. They're very competitive. Nobody wants to be left out of the good deals. Don't be last. Yeah. And there's a new trend. Oh, I got to be part of that. You know, if they're in it, I got to be in it. So I think they're getting their mojo back. That's great. (laughs) Well, at least uh, to the layoffs that we're seeing. And I know you've talked about this as it relates to HR layoffs as well. Mm -hmm. It seems like sometimes companies forget their values when they go through a layoff process. You know, onboarding, they have a really good approach. Offboarding, sometimes not as good approach and really miss the mark with their branding and their culture. And I'm wondering, what do you see in that area? Well, this business of laying people off by email is just terrible. I can't believe it's come to that. But put that aside for a sec. I think the problem we've been in for the last year is we had such a long growth cycle that companies overhired. And they weren't looking at productivity and they weren't looking at how busy people were. And they were just assuming that the more people we hire, the more revenue we're going to generate. And then all of a sudden, they realized that wasn't happening and they had this flywheel of hiring it was hard to stop it. So they grabbed it and they said, we're stopping. And then they looked around and they said, where did all these people come from? Who hired all these people? <laughs> you did. <laughs> why aren't they more productive? Well-run companies don't do that. They're always planning for the future. They're always thinking about how do we keep this group, this team, this business productive And if a certain business is slowing down, they move people out of it before it turns into a big cash sink and they move them to a higher growth area of the company. So I think that's a little bit what happened is everybody got a little bit drunk on these low interest rates and these high growth rates. As far as the way people are laid off, it does seem like there's been a social change in the manners and nature of layoffs. But even the people that have been laid off electronically that I've talked to, a lot of them have gotten really good benefits packages, four months of salary. A lot of them in tech, they got to take their computers home. I mean, they really gave them a lot of things because companies felt guilty about laying them off. By the way, a face-to-face layoff is no fun either. I've been laid off. And frankly, I didn't want to talk to my boss for more than one second. As soon as he gave me the the manila envelope, I was ready to leave. I didn't want to have a conversation with the guy. So you're saying it's not all bad. I think it's more pragmatic now, but I think people are still trying to do the best they can to to take care of the people that have been let go. Yeah, we've seen that too. Most companies are trying to take care of people because they know their future success comes right back to their organization. Right. They're going to want to hire these people back in the next cycle. Right. Or their friends, or they want them to be right. clients in the future. Right. All right. Let's get into Irresistible. Love the book. One of your concepts, it's work, not jobs. And you have a new spin on hybrid work or hybrid jobs. Maybe you could just elaborate on the concept because I think it's interesting. Most of the HR things we do are based on this idea of a job title, a job level, and a job description. And that is a written document that is usually written by a manager, not an HR person, but sometimes written by an HR person. And you throw it out there into the job seeking system and people apply for that job and they read the description and they say, hmm, I can do this, this, and this. This looks familiar. This looks like a job I can do. I've done it before. I'm going to apply. And then we have all this technology that matches the human being to the job description. Wang, we got the right person. Bring them on board. And they show up and they're like, this job is nothing like you said it was going to be. (laughs) 
that happens most of the time, probably. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a little bit like you described it, but, you know, we've got this weird manager and there's these other projects going on and this part of it's changing and that part of it's changing. So, So what's happening now is these job descriptions, which are sort of like little boxes, are really in the way. They're making it hard for people to hire correctly. They're making it hard for people to decide whether you need a promotion or not. And the future of this, which is happening now, is to look at a job as a role with a series of projects and tasks and responsibilities that change all the time. You know, maybe you hired into the company to do lead generation, maybe call people on the phone or send emails, and then a new piece of software was brought in that does that. So you don't need to do that anymore. Now you're managing that piece of software and you're analyzing the data and maybe you're developing campaigns and then some AI comes in and does all that. And now you're watching the AI and managing and training the AI. So we have to be careful that we don't lock in a rigid, complicated job structure that can't change fast enough. And many, many, many of the companies I talk to now have projects to simplify what is called the job architecture to facilitate this you know, more flexible way of working. And I think where companies are moving, and this is true everywhere, I mean, even in healthcare, where you have certain jobs that are regulated where you have to have the skills and the certification to do this job. Nobody else is allowed to do it unless they have that. But then there's all sorts of other things that many people could do. And we don't necessarily want to assign a job title to this project. And so, you know, that chapter was written, you know, maybe a year or so ago, but it's true today. I mean, it's happening in -hmm. companies. These job descriptions are getting more and more open and, and flexible to accommodate this change in the way we work. Right. You said focus in on hiring the right person that has the skill sets that you want to, and don't focus on the skills, aptitudes, the right culture fit with the company, somebody who's interested in the business that the company is in, somebody who's interested in the mission of the company, somebody who likes the people in the company and has the skills. And that's great. But, you know, people can develop new skills, but skills based hiring is a big part of it too. Not just hiring people that did this job before and had this college degree, but who has the skills and capabilities to do this job as we see it in, in the current situation. Did you talk a little bit about the new models of performance management and coaching that you sure. are seeing you know, and that you, that you advocate? Well, performance management is the most hated thing that HR people do. There's a survey that's coming out that said that close to 70% of the employees who took the survey said that the performance management is a complete waste of time. And as a result of that, They don't trust their manager, they don't trust the company, and they don't trust HR. So why would we create something that causes that? And I think the reason for that is that the history of performance management really goes back to the forced ranking, the need to rate people one to five, as if you could really rate a human being in a five-point scale Hmm. and get rid of the people at the bottom. So the new models of performance management are sometimes called performance enablement or performance development where we take a completely opposite philosophy and we say, everybody in this company has the potential to do more, to be more effective, to learn new things. What can we do to help them improve their performance, not just evaluate it? So that's coaching, development, feedback, giving people rotational assignments, giving them stretch assignments. And if they're not working out and they're not performing and they're not fitting in a job, to have an honest conversation with them and figure out if they're in the wrong job or the wrong company or maybe the wrong team and help them move to whatever's next. And then once a year, you do have to evaluate people. You have to decide who's going to get a raise and who isn't. And all that data has to come together. 
But when we focus on the rating and we have a numeric computation of how many goals you hit and therefore what rating you're going to get, you actually don't improve the performance of the company. In fact, there have been quite a few studies that have been done that show the more goals you give people, the lower they perform Hmm. because then they just think about their goals. They don't think about the job or the problem or the customer. So that's really where performance management has to go. It has to become a developmental process that's going on continuously. And then an evaluation at the end of the year that's more focused on where somebody's potential is and what, what kind of capabilities they've delivered over the last year. In purpose, not profits, organizations are really focused on metrics. How do really smart right. organizations get the results they want, those profits, by focusing on purpose? David, it's really sort of a profound question. If you're a great leader, a great executive, a great operations person, you will set goals that are achievable based on all the other decisions you've made, your channels, your product, your market, the economic cycle, your customers. If you do a good job of understanding that, then you'll set goals that accommodate those factors and stretch people enough that they can reasonably hit those goals and the company will be successful. If, on the other hand, you go to each person and say, we expect you to do 50% more. We expect you to do 30% more. We expect you to get this out five times faster, on and on and on. And you don't talk about the problem we're trying to solve and you don't look at it as a part of the whole company system, you become dysfunctional. Hmm. You have individuals trying to hit goals in their own domain that might be in conflict with or not in support of other people's goals. This happens in sales too. A lot of sales organizations find out when they over-rotate towards individual performance, they don't have a lot of teaming. Hmm. And then the big deals don't get done very well because people are fighting about who gets what. And the reason I talk about it as purpose, not profits, is there's a reason you have a company. The reason you have a company is not just to make money, it's to solve some big problem that you either want to solve or you believe you have a unique ability to solve because you've created something new. And you're going to chase that problem and you're going to get better and better and better at solving that problem. And people are dialing into that problem by joining the company. They're thinking, I love the fact that we're making these great pharmaceuticals. I love the fact that we're making iPhones. I love the fact that we do this consulting, whatever it is. And they bring with that the energy and the creativity to outperform. I've worked for, I don't know, maybe seven or eight companies in my career. And the ones that lost their purpose and focused on the numbers were the worst performers. They lost their way. Because they lost the sense of the market and the way the whole company operates together. Are there any examples of companies that really rally their organization around a common purpose that come to mind? I mean, one example I think is is Microsoft. When I was a a young guy in the 80s and Microsoft was selling PC stuff, they were a brutally competitive sales-oriented company. They got in a big fight with Netscape and they got a big fight with IBM and they, they really stomped all over all sorts of people. And you know, Steve Ballmer was a was a take charge sales oriented executive, and you know, grow every quarter and beat these guys and beat those guys. They missed the internet. They missed search. They missed mobile. They missed advertising. They missed a whole bunch of market needs that customers wanted. I guess they didn't think about it. They were too busy selling the stuff they had. And sure enough, there was a period of time where Microsoft was kind of a lagging stock. Everybody thought they were kind of a legacy company. Well, you know, along comes Satya Nadella and says, hey, 
we're in the business of learning and improving the productivity and the work experience of every human on the planet. Forget about the fact that we sell PC software. That's just one of the many things we do. We have a much bigger purpose than that. And we're not going to beat each other up on these targets anymore. We're going to work on figuring out what customers need next. And within a year or two, the culture of that company completely changed. And people started developing great products and doing really innovative things. I mean, they're leading the AI crusade right now. And I remember Microsoft very, very well. I competed with them when I worked at Sybase. It was a different company. That's a good example. I really like that. All right, let's talk about your predictions. People's sustainability. Tell the world yeah. about this one. Well, I stumbled across this a year or two ago, and I didn't really think much of it at the time. So there's been this conflicting and confusing conversation about sustainability. Is it environmental? Is it social? Is it governance, ESG? Is it about low carbon footprint? And you know, then, of course, there's this issue of the ESG stocks versus the ESG investors. Well, it turns out when you actually look at what's going on in real companies, they're taking this very, very seriously. They're worried about the sustainability of their manufacturing processes, their insurance based on global warming, et cetera. Meanwhile, in a parallel universe to all that, there's the HR department. And we're worried about pay equity. We're worried about diversity. We're worried about well-being. We're worried about work-life balance, harassment, safety. Turns out those are actually sustainability things because those are things that if they blow up in your face, actually affect the sustainability of the company. Hmm. So along comes this group in the European Union working on the new sustainability guidelines. And the Europeans seem to be ahead of the curve on a lot of these topics. And they created a category of mandatory reporting called people sustainability. I really was skeptical. I said, oh, that's just a bunch of BS. I wouldn't even read it. And then they said, no, 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 we're very serious about this. We are reframing a lot of these people practices or talent practices around this idea of the sustainability agenda. And as I talk to more companies about it, Nestle, I talked to SAP, I talked to Heineken, I talked to a lot of big companies, several, most of which are in Europe. They said, no, this is part of us building a safe, sustainable, long-term company and taking care of our people, of course, too. But we're going to reframe it in these terms. And so for those companies where the head of DEI is sitting out there on a limb trying to get everybody to pay attention to diversity or the pay equity agenda is kind of at the bottom of the list or you know, the well-being program is kind of floundering and everybody's supposed to come back to the office and work harder, this is a way to reframe that hmm. and say, this isn't just a bunch of HR stuff that we think is nice. This is a part of your sustainability agenda. And like I said, I think the US is going to be slower to adopt it, but the European companies are getting it. Hmm. And if you do business in the EU and you have more than $150 million of business in the EU, you're going to have to comply with these people's sustainability reporting objectives. And you're going to have to report on all of these things and they're going to become more visible to the investors. So, so I, I think it's a really pretty interesting trend. That's cool. I like it. We produced this podcast in cooperation with NERA, one of the largest Northeast Human Resources Association, one of the largest SHRM chapters in the country. And Megan here at Keystone is also our podcast producer. And she always asks the NERA question of the podcast. Josh, Tracy Burns is the CEO of NERA, and she has a question for you direct from Tracy. If you could go into a time machine, what will we be talking about 10 years from now in HR? 
But I think we're going to be even more worried about the human performance of each individual than we are today. I mean, what happened in the pandemic was we stressed people to the limit. We sent them home. We gave them physical stress about their illness and their life. We gave them a difficult home situation with their kids in school or not in school. We remotely connected them to work, took away all their personal relationships at work. And for many people, they lost a lot of their social lives too. So we created a lot of trauma. And what most companies realized is they had to be much more forgiving and flexible and caring and responsible about their employees, which has been a slow, slow, slow growth. Well, it jumped up a lot during the pandemic. I think 10 years from now, when we have companies that are more distributed, more networked, more interconnected to each other, we're going to be even more focused on the human issues at work. We're going to have AI to take over a lot of these decision-making things that are complicated. And we're going to be able to think much more about the human side of work. I mean, this has started the last few years, but I think it's going to be even greater. And I think a lot of employees will work part-time. They'll work multiple jobs, multiple companies. We'll have much more flexible work arrangements. And we're going to have to live in companies that have fewer workers per dollar of revenue because the number of workers is not going up at the rate of GDP. The birth rate is down. The marriage rate is down. Almost every developed economy is expected to peak in its total working population in the next 10 years and then decline. Now, that may change, but it doesn't change quickly. So we're not going to have as many people. And so I just think we're going to see this continuous improvement in the sensitivity to the human issues in the workforce and in the company in general. You strongly recommend people spend time in other functions before getting into HR. And what advice would you have for those looking to break into HR from either other industries or other functions? I love HR. I mean, I didn't know anything about it until I became an analyst. I think it's the most fascinating, incredibly rich career you could possibly have but it's complicated. You need to understand psychology, recruiting, pay, training and development, technology, data. In fact, there's 92 capabilities that we've discovered in HR. You're not going to learn that by taking the test from SHRM and getting <laughs> certified. The only way to learn that is to be involved in a lot of different projects inside and outside of HR. Because by the way, one of the things that's unique about HR is we're sitting around thinking about the people issues all day well, basically, so is everybody else. They're just thinking about them from a different perspective. You won't be as sensitive to the requirements of your business counterparts unless you've been in their shoes and actually seen what they're dealing with. So I think a great HR career is one where you've moved around into different domains. You've worked in finance. You've worked in marketing. You've worked in sales. You've worked in operations. You've come back into HR. You've had a functional job where you had maybe a multifunctional job. And you've had some really difficult things to deal with. Maybe you've had to deal with a merger or a layoff, a downturn, or just a big productivity and org redesign. And you learn a lot. It is a craft. I, I consider it to be like, in many ways, like a carpenter. You can't teach a carpenter how to build a cabinet. They have to try it a couple of times and build a couple of crummy cabinets and then get some help. <laughs> Great analogy. Any new skills you think HR should be focused on? I mean, obviously, data is a big topic, mm -hmm. understanding technology. You've got to be comfortable with technology. You can't assume that IT is going to take care of it. When we look at the capabilities most in demand from the capability project that we have, 
Number one is consulting skills. And most HR people have never been a consultant. And I've had the opportunity to work in a consulting firm for almost seven years. Hmm. What consultants do is they don't solve problems. They diagnose problems. They listen. They dig in. They look around the corners. They try to figure out all of the intricate you know, side cases that have created this situation that they've asked you to address. And then they have a multifunctional or multi-domain view of the solution. They don't sit around and say, oh, let's build a new onboarding program. Here, I've designed it. Let's get everybody to use it. They go back and say, what problem are we trying to solve? So that's number one. And that's a really, really important part of HR is learning how to be a good consultant. Mm -hmm. It also means listening and understanding stakeholders and understanding who the real customer is and all of that. The second, believe it or not, is change management. Everybody asks for help with this. I think we've moved to a domain where change isn't a project, it's a constant. It isn't like you're change managing the implementation of this new thing. You're change managing everything that's happening all the time. It's not an event, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a never-ending thing. So we call yeah. it change agility. Mm-hmm. And so what are the psychological and leadership and management practices that facilitate change is another big area of HR. And I don't know if people have really learned a lot about that over the years. So that's another one that comes up a lot. That's great. If you could give advice to your 30-year-old self, career professional advice, you could write a letter, dear Josh, what would that topic be? Relax and stop worrying so much because things work out in the end. You're in this situation, you're like, I'm not really very good at this job. I'm not performing the way I could be. You know, am I going to get fired? What am I doing wrong? Turned out I was just in the middle of a learning experience. I just didn't know it. Just relax and just hang in there. That's great. We've actually heard that for some other guests too that have reached great success. And if you could go to dinner with any person who you haven't met, who would it be? You know, I think I would have liked to have met Peter Drucker. I met Edgar Schein, who's a very famous culture guy. I really admire those management consultants that have been around the block. That's cool. Do you have a hidden talent or a secret life hack? I get a lot of exercise. The only way I can keep doing what I do at the pace I do it is I just have to get out. And what is it? Today, I got up at four. I went for a walk between 4.30 and 5.30. I came home. I got back in bed. I went to sleep for half an hour, and then I started working. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just do stuff like that because it's the only way I can keep going. Activity. That is great. Josh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.